Winter was here, but we're just getting started on our Game of Thrones rewatch. And now here are the two guys who are often wailing themselves. I am Rob Sister. Here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm crying all the time, but especially hard after this episode. Man, Losing Lady was triggering for me, Rob. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> oh, this was, was the wrong week for you. This was difficult. That was tough. That was this hard. This was the wrong week. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, my wife, Emily, and I, we lost our cat last week. One of two. The incredible Isabella Catalini is no longer with us. And I had forgotten that episode two of Game of Thrones is the episode where you lose Lady to Direwolf so fast in this story. And I got to that moment in the episode. I was like, no! Oh, God, no. So I'm doing okay. I've gotten my tears out of my system. I think that I'll be able to make it through the podcast without crying. Okay, hang in there, Josh. We hang are, in tight. There are, there are some good times to be had here in uh, this second episode of Game of Thrones, The King's Road. We will open this podcast up with some spoiler-free discussion, and then we will spend a much bigger chunk of time talking about lots of intrigue that has come to pass from this episode in particular. If you missed the first episode of our rewatch, talking about the series premiere of Game of Thrones, Winter is Coming. You can get all that and much more in our Game of Thrones podcast feed. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes, and you can catch a new episode of this podcast every Tuesday at THR or on Post Show Recaps. That sounds great to me. Yeah, though, this is fun. Uh, It's really fun to go back and watch early Game of Thrones and see just how much has changed. But also a lot is, you know, it's it's very consistently compelling right off the bat. So uh, can't wait to dig into it. Let's I brought my shovel with me, Rob. I hope that you did as well. So in terms of going through this in the spoiler-free version, I think that what makes sense to do, because we have so many people who listen to this who have been spoiled, have been watching the show all the way through, let's just talk through what happens in this episode, and then the rest of the podcast, we can talk about what happens. And of course, a lot of the action in this episode comes out of last week's conclusion when Bran ends up being pushed out of the window. He ultimately will wake up at the end of the episode, but there is a lot of talk whether or not he's going to pull through. And we start to hear word, well, he'll probably survive it, but he won't be the same. He won't be the same. Uh, There is that moment where Maester Lewin apparently has advised them that Bran has been through the worst of it at this point, and he's probably going to survive. But that's not taking into account the fact that apparently there's an assassin lurking in Winterfell with an eye toward taking down Bran, and Catelyn Stark is, uh, I guess, lucky enough to be there. If she's not there, that probably goes through. Uh, And it kicks off kind of this Detective Catelyn story, uh, you know, in in this episode where she goes back to the site of where Bran was pushed out of the window by Jamie Lannister and she shows up and she sees strands of hair there. Please resist the urge to break out your strand voice, Rob. Uh, okay. and, <laughs> and we we have this moment afterwards where Catelyn basically calls upon the Winterfell Avengers or at least anybody who is still around in Winterfell that's kind of becoming her inner circle and she fills them in on her theory that I don't think Bran fell off the tower I think Bran was pushed. Meanwhile, we get to see a lot of the Winterfell action starting from the POV of Tyrion Lannister, who ends up, he wakes up in this episode, and uh, he is in the Winterfell kennels, uh, which we'll, I guess, uh, see eventually more of down the road. And um, what a wild night it must have been for Tyrion tying one on to wake up in the kennels, Josh. How did that happen? What happened? (laughs) What happened to Tyrion Lannister that he woke up in the kennel of Winterfell. Uh, I, I hate that that scene doesn't exist. Like, why is there not a scene that shows us Tyrion's funky night that well, got him to this moment? he also dyed his hair from the events of leading up to this, so I don't know exactly what happened. It's unclear to you me. Sure ha- that's, you sure that's dye, Rob? Is that, is that what's in his hair? Is that what's going on? Yeah. It's unclear also how long the Lannisters are at Winterfell. You see that there is some talk by Catelyn about how she's been sitting at Bran's bedside for a 
month. And then also uh, we have everybody on the King's Road and they are not back at King's Landing yet. So I don't know if the Lannisters were in the north for two weeks or three weeks or however long they want it to stay. It explains why, especially like Cersei and even Jamie, uh, are just like so twitchy and so uppity and so ready to go back south. They hate the north. Uh, and if they've already been there for about a month, then that sounds right. Yeah. It's certainly been a while. You know, you even get the sense of a decent amount of time passing in that first episode. Yeah, this is not their favorite place to be. So when Tyrion ultimately wakes up, though, Joffrey is standing there. And Joffrey has a, a pretty sick burn of Tyrion uh, at the start of this episode. What does he say to him? Better looking bitches than you're used to, Uncle. <laughs> Wait, what did he what did he say to <laughs> he Tyrion? He said better looking bitches than you're used to, uncle. Oh my <laughs> god. Wow. Wow, Joffrey's the worst. This episode is a great showcase for just how awful Joffrey Baratheon is. Uh, three smacks across the face and a chomped upon arm are not enough for this kid. This guy is the worst. <laughs> you hear Tyrion tell Joffrey that he needs to go pay his respects to Ned and Catelyn, and Joffrey is not into that idea. Before you go, you will call on Lord and Lady Stark and offer your sympathies. What could all my sympathies do then? None, but it is expected of you. Your absence has already been noted. The boy means nothing to me. Oh, I can't stand the wailing of women. <laughs> One word, and I hit you again. I'm telling mother. Oh. <laughs> Oh, my God. There's really nothing like the wailing of Joffrey Baratheon. I mean, like, uh, you know, all the respect in the world to Jack Gleason, who plays this character so, so, so well. Like, he's just instantly the most loathsome individual you have ever set your eyes upon. Uh, it's just fantastic, fantastic, yeah. fantastic work. That's such a great scene. And it's awesome. Yeah, I believe that there's like a YouTube clip that's like 10 hours straight of Joffrey just getting slapped by Tyrion. You can uh, yeah. look for that uh, and, and it's fantastic uh, we see the, a big Lannister breakfast going on uh, which seems you know pretty cordial for you know the Lannisters uh, with uh, Jamie and Cersei and even Marcella and Tommen what do you think of Tyrion's breakfast order uh, bread two of those little fish a mug of dark beer and bacon burned black does that seem like a balanced meal to you no, it seems like uh, I think you get the fish and the beer out of there. They seem out of place, but I don't really know what's on the buffet menu at Winterfell. Can't imagine it's great. Uh, the food that they've got on the King's Road, that was a spread. You that know, whatever spread. King, whatever King Robert and Ned were eating, that looked delightful. But I don't know how the food is at uh, at Winterfell. I don't know what they're getting that far north. Um I like the the bacon burned black though. That sounds that sounds tasty. Crispy. That sounds good. Crispy. I love the crispy. One of the other big storylines is John leaving to head to the wall, and uh, we saw him talking with Uncle Benjamin in the previous episode. He is going to be off to go and take the black finally. And we see him talk this through with a bunch of different people, uh, including Jamie Lannister, uh, which we will spend more time on that conversation later on, Josh. But we see that Tyrion is going to join Jon Snow on the trip to the Wall. They're going to they're gonna have some time to hang out together. And uh, Jon is going to make fun of Tyrion's book reading habit. And Tyrion is going to take the opportunity to keep calling Jon a bastard, even though he knows that that's a triggering word for Jon Snow. Uh, so it's a fun dynamic that's being established between these two or there, there's like a little bit of a sense of saltiness between them and I don't think that's from the fish or the bacon uh, but there's also sort of this like begrudging kind of like sizing each other up and maybe even a little bit of respect between the two uh, so it's an interesting dynamic for sure and that scene you see of, uh, of John laying eyes upon the wall for the very first time that's pretty epic that's a really really majestic view of the wall I am kind of shocked that the Stark kids have never seen the wall before before yeah john john is like 18 19 years old here right like he's in his late teens at least if not early 20s uh and you have you you've been in in winterfell you've been in the north there's not a ton to do 
and you've never been to the wall before, you're a Stark. You know, you're part of the family. You guys should have, you know, been taking field trips here all the time. The only thing I could say with that is that maybe the wall is not as good as it's cracked up to be from all like because John seems like that he is in for a bit of culture shock uh, when they bring the rapist in and Tyrion is like right. here's your new brother here's your right. you know this part of the Night's Watch family and John's like wait a second that wasn't in the brochure did not sign on for that was not expecting that yeah so I do think that that's a little bit of a surprise and I think uh, I think that's a great way of putting it I think the culture shock that Jon Snow might be in for as he joins the Night's Watch that's a that's a fun story to keep an eye on this episode spends a lot of time in the east as well on the relationship between danny and Khal drogo which takes a surprising positive turn in this episode after how uh, things began in this very rocky relationship daenerys targaryen is uh, among many things a quick learner you know good study She's, uh, she's, you know, she's, she's shrewd, she's savvy, and she figures out her way uh, with Khal Drogo pretty quickly in this episode, for sure. And yeah, we're getting a little bit more of a sense of Dothraki culture and uh, Viserys really wanting to stick around with the Dothraki even after the wedding because he is hell bent on taking back Westeros. He's a Targaryen. This is his by rights. He should be the king of the Seven Kingdoms, if not for the fact that his father was betrayed and overthrown. So he wants to go back and he is not leaving the Dothraki until Khal Drogo makes good on his promise to help out now that he's married to Daenerys. I also like in the beginning of the episode where we see Jorah with Viserys talking about how Viserys is asking, why did uh, Ned Stark want to banish you to the east? Like, oh, dealing with slaves? Well, just so you know, when I'm in charge, that's not going to be a problem. Slavery is back. (laughs) Yeah, you're back. So don't worry about that, Jorah. He is all in. He loves that. So, yeah. So, and that's, you know, it's a character note about Jorah, too. Like, you're starting to learn a little bit more about who that guy is. And he's clearly got a soft spot for Daenerys. He's even sharing some of his precious horse jerky with her. Yeah. Would you eat horse jerky, Sure. No? You wouldn't wouldn't do it? I'd probably, I'd probably pass. I mean, I guess if it's the only thing that's, uh... That's out there. They have grass and they have horses. So what do you want? Yeah, I think if you're with the Dothraki, you don't really have much of a choice. But given, um, look, if it was on the the breakfast buffet spread at Winterfell, I'm probably skipping over it. No, I'd go for the two little fishes and the (laughs) breakfast beer before the horse jerky. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a dire situation. You have to do it. Dire wolves. And then the final third of the episode ultimately deals with this developing situation, which happens when we see Arya having a sword fight with uh, the butcher's boy. And then Joffrey, all drunk, comes out of nowhere with Sansa and ends up picking a fight and getting more than he bargained for from both Arya and Nymeria the Direwolf. Yeah, uh, he's picking a fight with Micah the Butcher's Boy, who sadly does not make it out of this episode alive. He gets uh, hunted down off screen and killed, which is very, very sad. Um, but we have, uh, we do have this scene with Joffrey where once again, he's just kind of proving himself to be this little twerp. Uh, and Sansa has, you know, stars in her eyes over this guy. This is somebody who she's uh, fallen for fairly quickly here. And we kind of get the sense from Sansa in the first episode, certainly but definitely in this episode that she kind of has like these Disney princess dreams and she's looking for her happily ever after. And Robert and Ned have already talked about how uh, we can join our houses. You have a daughter. I have a son. So Sansa might be in line to one day become the queen of the seven kingdoms. And now she's getting kind of this really sort of like a little bit of like a dream busting look at who the guy she could marry one day is actually like, you know, Joffrey is awful. He is putting a sword up against this young kid's face and drawing blood and just slowly torturing the guy and then in the face of true adversity self-generated adversity he is such a little wimp he is such a little wimp about it uh swinging his sword wildly at a little girl and then getting brought to his you know put put on his back by this kid uh having a sword in his face and then having uh, a dire wolf chomp on his arm 
Uh, and all of these things, I'm, I'm not saying that I would necessarily be brave in that situation, but I don't think I would get myself into that situation. Uh, and Joffrey does, and he does it very cavalierly. So this episode does a really, really great stellar job at establishing literally everything you need to know about Joffrey Baratheon. How much do you want to blame the wine on Joffrey's behavior <laughs> in this episode? If you just say, well, he was, you know, he's like 10 and he was really drunk. He probably shouldn't have been drinking. Um, I don't know who you want to pin that on. Like, you could pin that on Joffrey himself. Uh, you could pin that on uh, Robert or Cersei for being bad parents who are just kind of overlooking uh, Joffrey or at least allowing him to do whatever he wants so they're spoiling him. I think there's a lot of blame to pass around. At least as much blame as there is wine. My favorite part of that is then when Arya takes Joffrey's sword and just, like, does a three 360 helicopter discus toss of it into the river. Uh, I really did like that as well. I think that just as this episode really gives you so much information about a character like Joffrey, this episode also gives you so much information about a character like Arya. Uh, you know, she gets a sword for the first time, not even including Joffrey's sword. John has a sword built for her. She names it Needle because Sansa can have her sewing needles and I get a needle of my own. Uh, she is very much, you know, we even got this from her first scene in the first episode where she is, uh, she is uh, doing better at archery than her brother Bran. This is her wheelhouse you know like the Starks are proud warriors and she comes from that line and that is where she has her interests she doesn't care about like the domestic stuff or being somebody's lady at some point down the line she wants to be a warrior and she is a warrior in this episode she's seemingly doing well in like the play fighting with the butcher's boy and then she whoops Joffrey Mm. and what's more you get like a little bit more of a character note in that she's also got a kind heart and she's sensible enough to know that if uh, if Nymeria is discovered if she and the direwolf get found by the Lannisters after all of this has gone on it's probably not going to be good for Nymeria so she sends Nymeria away even if it's emotionally difficult to make a move like that uh, she sends this direwolf away so I think that you're getting a lot of information about that character as well Uh, and if you're two episodes deep into Game of Thrones and Arya Stark is your favorite character so far I think it would be hard pressed uh, I would be hard pressed to fight that Uh, she has a very stellar first couple of episodes here and the big conclusion in this episode comes when we have a whole search party out for Arya and then they locate her. She's brought back to sort of this uh, little tribunal that's set up between King Robert and Cersei and with Ned and they're talking about what is happening. We have conflicting stories. Joffrey claiming that he was minding his own business. He was attacked. Arya obviously has the true version of the story. They summon Sansa. She's like, I don't remember what happened Ah." which really pisses off Arya oh Arya's mad she's (laughs) upset she's upset with that not a fan of that yeah not great Sansa taking uh, Joffrey's side but comes to regret that pretty quickly given what happens to poor little lady which makes me so sad yes because Arya scared away Nymeria she knew that this was going to be bad news for Nymeria so she sends her off into the world but then ultimately a dire wolf has to pay the price King Robert says you should have got the kids a dog they'll be happier and so it turns out that Ned Stark has to uh, you know it's for a northern dire wolf he doesn't want some butcher to take care of it he'll do the job himself really at the prodding of Cersei Lannister who was really pushing for this Robert I don't think he could have cared one way or the other what do you think of the uh of the fact that just one episode earlier very first episode of the entire show ned stark is so ready to put down these dire wolves and then it's very very difficult for him to do one episode later do you make anything of that no i just think that that's sort of the nature of you know bringing home a, a pet yeah he's become attached and it's been like two months at this point yeah been like and i don't a, think that it's he's been necessarily while. attached but his kids are he doesn't want to see them upset yeah this is an upsetting thing that he has to do here but again informing you a lot about who these characters are in Ned being the guy to do it. He says, no, do not throw little lady over to Ilan Payne. This is, you know, this, this, this animal deserves better than just like being executed like that. Uh, and he takes it on himself. Ned Stark is a guy who takes on burdens. This is something that he does. It's part of his Stark honor. That's kind of the vibe of House Stark, that these are people who are duty bound and they are, you know, people who are noble and sometimes headstrong, but always, always trying to do the right thing. Uh, and as far as this being an awful thing to have to happen, 
Ned views it as if it's got to happen, I got to be the one to do it. Like I have to be the one who actually commits the act and I'll have to be the person who explains why it had to be done. Uh, A tough day uh, as a father for Ned Stark, I think. Right. But not as tough of a day as it probably was for the butcher as Micah, the butcher boy also ends up having to be executed. The episode doesn't make nearly as much about that order being given. Spoiler alert. The butcher is not a character in game of Thrones. So (laughs) (laughs) we're not, we're not going to be diving into the psyche of the butcher who is going to be very, very upset at the loss of Micah, unfortunately, but RIP Micah, we hardly knew you. Uh, very, very sad. Uh, and I think it, it goes to show you kind of the stakes involved with Game of Thrones. This isn't a show that's afraid to push a kid out of a window, and it's not a show that's afraid to actually kill a young child. Uh, so just kind of giving you a little bit of a taste of like tone of the show and like what it's willing to do in terms of its content, how far it's willing to push it. Okay, and that's everything that happens in the second episode of Game of Thrones. Josh, is there anything else that you want to establish here before we get into our spoiler section? Well, no, I mean, Bran wakes up at the end of the episode, so uh, he, you know, he ends that first episode in a terrible situation. It's a really rough situation for much of episode two for him, but he's awake at the end. So I think that you're left with this sort of curiosity of like, what's going to happen next for this kid? Uh, the Starks are going to continue on their road south. Catelyn Stark now has ideas about what may have happened to her child. Jon Snow is heading uh, to the wall. He's at the wall, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and it seems like things are going a little bit better for Danny and Drogo. So that's another storyline to watch. And I think that satisfies where we're up to at the end of episode two. Okay, so when you hear this sound, this means this is no longer safe for you to listen to here in the rewatch edition of the Game of Thrones podcast. So here we go. All right, get the hell out of here. Three okay. buzzes, four spoilers. That is the signal. Those are the horns. <laughs> okay, there you go. So, Josh, the thing that's top of mind for me after rewatching this episode, which, again, I really did enjoy uh, this episode, even though it was a little bit of a peace-moving episode where we are literally moving characters down the King's Road. I really did enjoy this uh, rewatch of this. But I got to start with the Valerian Steel dagger the cat's paw dagger that ended up being such a big part of this season seven that we saw that dagger gets brought back to winterfell and then it is passed around from Littlefinger to bran to aria ultimately aria is going to use that same dagger to slash Littlefinger's throat and from what we understand and based on the last episode of game of thrones that we saw in the new episodes that Littlefinger stands accused of using that dagger to frame Tyrion lannister to end up to really speed up the war of the the five kings that does not really make a lot of sense based on what we see in this episode i think that i don't know that it's like a it's an open and shut case uh because i think you're right it doesn't make a ton of sense based on what we see in this episode and even like when you really think about the mechanics of how all of that would have had to work in order for Littlefinger to like push that into motion like it's very very logistically complicated um so i'm 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 skeptical of at the very least I don't think that it's Game of Thrones' plan originally to have Littlefinger be the guy who put this into motion. Um, in the books, like this is not a satisfied deal yet, although I think it's like strongly implied that maybe Joffrey was the guy who put this into action. I don't think, I think that this is going to be one of those instances where the books, whenever they finish, if they finish, don't align with the show. But the show was really, you know, following the roadmap of George R.R. R. Martin in these first, uh, the King's roadmap in these first, you know, few seasons. And, I don't think that at the time, you know, they were creating this scene with the knowledge of like who actually sent the assassin. Um, so, yeah, it, it does. It does not hold together terribly strongly for me either. Although having watched the scene again now, I now understand why we're calling it the cat's paw dagger, because Catelyn Stark puts her paw on the dagger. <laughs> yeah. Never thought of it that way. It's cat's paw. But even sort of the logistics of how this would happen. So we see that Jamie and Cersei find out from Tyrion at that breakfast. Okay, it looks like Bran is going to make it out of this, that the maester says that he's going to ultimately wake up. 
They don't seem super alarmed about this. We'll see Cersei go and visit Kat in Bran's room at one point in the episode. But for Littlefinger to get this news and then somehow get a dagger up to the north, up to Winterfell from King's Landing... I, it's not like you can put the dagger on a raven. I don't you sure know. about that? Ravens are pretty incredible creatures, Rob. Could two ravens maybe carry a dagger? <laughs> oh, my God. Just like visualizing what that looks like logistically is sort of incredible. Like one has like the hilt. One has the blade tip, the pointy end, as it were. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that works. And also... I think that you could certainly argue like, okay, well, maybe the season seven characters don't have the story right, but we have the three-eyed raven himself in Bran who was able to hold the dagger. He's able to quote things that Littlefinger said. I can't imagine that he's misinformed, right? I don't think that we're going to get any further elaboration on it ever. You know, I think that the the cat's paw dagger storyline is closed as far as season seven is concerned. And we've got six episodes of Game of Thrones left as we're recording this. And I don't think that this is going to be an issue anymore. Uh, So I do think that you probably you're probably best just assuming that it is Littlefinger who put this into motion. Um, But I don't think that you'll ever get like any outright confirmation of it on the show. I think just the way that the execution played out and the fact that it plays out with the dagger is the show's way of telling you that yeah Littlefinger was the guy but I'll I'll maintain I don't think that Littlefinger was the guy at the time of the writing of this scene uh, I don't think that that's where the story was going but the show has had to go off script from the books and I think it made its own decision on this one but in terms of Littlefinger's uh, prescience on all of this in terms of he's either remarkably accurate or just very very lucky. Now, I could even see that if John Aaron was closing in on discovering the truth about Jamie and Cersei, obviously not the best kept secret in Westeros, it's possible that he's like, oh, this will really add fuel to the fire that they would have wanted John Aaron dead. So if we poison right. John Aaron, it'll look like them. But Littlefinger has no idea that Bran ends up getting pushed out the window because he saw Jamie and Cersei having sex in that tower and certainly has no idea that Catelyn Stark will then go up to said tower and investigate and then find one of Cersei Lannister's hairs unless Littlefinger also had the evidence planted at the crime scene to get Cat <laughs> Stark thinking in that way. So it really seems unimaginable, even for the Three-Eyed Raven, to be able to have this kind of foresight to plan a murder from Bran that nobody else knew other than Cersei and Jamie that they pushed him out the window, that they would have the motive to see Bran be killed. So here's here's what could work um, is, you know, he gets news about what happened to Bran. And maybe if what happens to Bran doesn't happen, maybe Littlefinger has some sort of alternate plan in place. Maybe there's another intended victim. But it could be as simple as you send the assassin in with the dagger. You kill Bran or insert Stark of choice here if Bran has not been pushed out the window. Uh, and you leave the dagger at the crime scene. And we're going to see in episode three, we can talk about this again next week. We can revisit this a little bit. That's, I I believe, when Littlefinger is going to be like, that dagger belongs to Tyrion Lannister. So I think that very quickly, Littlefinger could have piped up as like a, I don't want to like, you know, poke the bear here. Like, I don't want to, you know, stir the pot or anything, Catelyn. I know that you're grieving. I'm sorry for your loss, but I know who that dagger belongs to. And then I think that he can stir the pot that way and then kind of introduce this Stark and Lannister feud. Uh, So I think that it's independent of uh of Bran seeing Jamie and Cersei the way that he did and what happened to him like you can imagine the scenario where the Lannisters are in Winterfell nothing has happened to Bran and Littlefinger sends an assassin to murder Ned Stark or somebody else or like poor little Rickon or just whoever's defenseless and whoever is easy to get and then finding a way to pin that on the Lannisters so Littlefinger sent an assassin to the north and basically said kill 
any Stark with this dagger and then leave the dagger behind so the Lannisters get pinned for this. Yeah, and then I think, you know, he could send him a raven halfway through the trip. You know, once he finds out about what's happened to Bran, he's like, hey, scratch that. This is the plan now. But yeah, I don't think that it's too much of a leap to imagine you him can sending hit people on the up. road with a raven. Well, I think that he's at Winterfell right now. So I think it's not like a crazy stretch to imagine that he's like, hey, go to Winterfell, be part of this party hang out for a little while, you know, like feel things out, let things lie for a bit and then choose a moment where you can kill one of the Starks and just drop this thing. And I will be able to pick up the pieces from there. Like, I actually don't think that that's wildly far fetched. I'm sure this is something that's explained better in the books, but the TV show kind of yada yada is this. But why does Arya have to go to King's Landing with Ned and Sansa? Well, I think that they are, you know, this is this is like the opportunity for everybody to kind of like fulfill their destinies. Uh, and I bet Bran would be going to King's Landing as well if what happened to him didn't happen. Uh, Rob is going to stick behind, obviously, because while Ned is gone, uh, Rob is eventually one day in line to be the Lord of Winterfell. So he's got to stay back and he has to, you know, continue following his path, his destiny. Sansa is going to be married off to Joffrey. So it makes sense to bring her. And then I think that you're bringing Arya and Bran down with you as well. So they can learn the ways of the court. They can learn the ways of high society here in Westeros, maybe make marriage pacts and alliances of their own, uh, but, of course, Arya, like, this is not her scene. Like, this is not her thing. Um, but we don't really get the sense that, you know, Ned is super willing to cater to that. At least not yet. He's going to pick up on it pretty quickly once they're in King's Landing. Like, oh, I should probably hire somebody to to teach Arya how to do all of this stuff. She's clearly more into this than she is into sewing and, you know, being a lady and everything. But I think that the idea, the design, is to get her familiar with political culture in Westeros. One of the big things that I wanted to ask you about after after rewatching this episode comes from the scene with Kat and with Cersei where we see Cersei try to bring some comfort to Kat. Now, of course, that uh, Kat has no idea that Cersei and Jamie were the reasons for him falling out the window at this time. And it just seems like that this is a moment of actually here's Cersei, the Ice Queen, actually having a nice moment but she talks about something which really stands out to me on the rewatch she talks about how she too has lost a child and there was a first child that she and robert had together and he was a black-haired beauty as she would describe him and says, and he was a fighter too. He fought off a fever and ultimately they had to take him away from her. She never visited the baby in the crypts. I know that this has uh, generated a lot of controversy and theories over the years, but do you believe that Cersei is telling a true story to Kat, or is this something that's just apocryphal or something that she's just trying to make Kat feel better? I don't know that that's in Cersei's character. Like, she's not afraid to inflict great, great wounds on people, but just like based on like a kind of casual, elaborate lie for no reason, and certainly something that could be looked into. I don't know why she would do that, at least at this stage of the game. So I'm inclined to believe her that it happened. Uh, I it, I don't believe that it's that it happens in the books. I think this is just for the show. Um, and it's something that honestly, like I had kind of forgotten about. Uh, but there are these theories out there that potentially what it could mean is that Cersei uh, could be the mother of a character we know on the show. Uh, there are theories out there that Cersei might be Gendry's mother. Uh, and this was something that Joe Dempsey, I did an interview with him during season seven. He kind of brought this up as well. Uh, this is a quote from that interview where he says to me, there are certainly unanswered questions about Gendry. Uh, you remember it the first time you ever see Gendry in Game of Thrones when Ned Stark comes to visit him in the forgeries and asks him about his mother. And he says, I don't remember her. All I remember is she had yellow hair and she used to sing to me. It's the only time it's ever been referenced. So you're hoping there might be some answers there in terms of who Gendry's mother might be, and maybe that could have a domino effect. Uh, so that was something that Joe Dempsey had floated my way. Let's pay attention to that scene. We're going to get there not too long from now uh, on the rewatch. Uh, it sounds like, based on the way she tells the story, does it sound to you like the baby died in Cersei's arms? Like, did she watch the child pass away? 
Yeah, I think she actually does make it sound as though the baby did not make it. I have the clip from this moment, so let's listen to what Cersei says to Kat. I lost my first boy. Little blackhead beauty. He was a fighter too. Tried to beat the fever that took him. Forgive me. It's the last thing you need to hear right now. I never knew. It was years ago. Robert was crazed, beat his hands bloody on the wall. All the things men do to show you how much they care. The boy looked just like him. Such a little thing. A bird without feathers. He came to take his body away. Robert held me. I screamed and I battled, but he held me. That little bundle. It took him away and I never saw him again. Never visited the crypt. Never. So she does say that they took his body away, which to me implies that there is a, a, a death. That being said, this is Game of Thrones and we have all sorts of crazy things that happen. What do we gain from this being true, if it is true, that Gendry is Cersei's son? Like, what's the upside of that, if that's where we're going? Like, are we building to a scenario where the good guys win the war against the White Walkers, the Iron Throne is intact, or at least Westeros is in enough good shape, in good enough shape, that there needs to be, like, a new king, there needs to be a new royal hierarchy? Could we see a Gendry rise to the Iron Throne if he's like the legitimate son of Cersei and Robert? Is that something that you could see the show doing? Or is that just like, is is that even worth going into that territory? I don't know if ultimately that Gendry being of a, you know, a proper lord and uh, was the product of Cersei and Robert, ultimately if that helps make his case when I feel like that there, you could just as easily in the writing of the story just just say, okay, well, we are going to now, and he's going to be Gendry Baratheon and, and make him a proper lord. But for me, I think that the biggest thing that this would change is that I feel like we have to throw all of Maggie the Frog out the window. Oh, tell me more about that. Because, I mean, the prophecy was that she was going to have three children. Gold will be their crown and gold will be their shrouds. No mention of black-haired beauty Gendry. Yeah. Again, though, it's a show invention and it's the second episode of the series and it could be just like something that they threw in there without really considering that far down the line and then maybe eventually like... I mean, we've kind of forgotten that this is <laughs> that this even yeah. happened. You can imagine the scenario where like they didn't know what was coming up or they forgot about this detail as well. Um, but either way, it's kind of interesting. Uh, this is an interesting sort of note to, to re-explore with Cersei. I don't know that it's really going to matter too much down the line. I do think that part of the fun of this rewatch project, though, is to kind of put on our Valyrian foil hats and just like, you know, kind of throw some stuff at the wall and maybe plant some flags in terms of improbable things that could potentially come to light in the final six episodes. I think you could call this a pretty improbable thing, but if something like this comes to pass, where Gendry is like a legitimate child of Robert Baratheon and Cersei Lannister, it's not without some foundation, you know, from the very earliest days of the show. So we'll pick up this conversation again in a few episodes when we meet Gendry. Josh, I want to talk about Jon Snow because he has a lot to do in this episode as he is beginning to pack up his belongings and uh, take the long road to the wall in this episode. And we see him have a lot of different memorable interactions with characters that will be very important in the future. And we actually, I thought that this was uh, very interesting coming out of the last scene that we just talked about with Cersei and with Kat, because we go right from that conversation. And did you notice what they transition to? No. They go right to the Winterfell blacksmith of all places. And I thought that that was very interesting coming out of that Gendry conversation. Oh my God. Wow. All right. I'm in. I'm a Gendry, Gendry Lannister truther. I'm in. I'm all the way in. And wouldn't it be especially spectacular because Gendry's kind of an idiot and the Lannisters are supposed to be super smart? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's those it's those proud Baratheon jeans just shining through. And they go from there to Jamie spotting Jon Snow. And Jon Snow is obviously getting Needle, which he'll give to Arya in the scene after this. And Jamie talks to Jon Snow about how that he's going to go join the Night's Watch to go and guard us from all of the perils beyond the wall. And he's very mocking and, you know... Compare this to where we leave things off with Jamie Lannister, where at the end of season seven, he's leaving King's Landing to go join up with Jon's forces to fight the perils beyond the wall. It's because Jamie has grown up so much over the course of seven seasons, Rob. Uh, but that being said, I actually think revisiting this scene where John and Jamie are talking, and I almost had forgotten that this already existed. Uh, like you do remember it as like Jamie just being kind of a jerk to John, the way that he always is to the Stark men in particular. Uh, but I, I think like, yeah, that element is definitely still here. Like it definitely comes across as kind of antagonistic and the way that he shakes John's hand and like kind of pulls him in and is physically aggressive with him but i think you're already at this point getting shades of like the 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 man behind the armor for jamie like the guy behind the persona the facade the uh the the avatar he kind of projects to the world of just being sort of like this sarcastic snarky guy when he says those words to john where he says give my regards to the night's watch i'm sure you'll be thrilled to serve such an elite force and if not it's only for life uh, like that could that that reads as like a real sharp dig, but it's actually kind of self-reflective. That's Jamie's lot in life, too. He got signed on for the King's Guard, and that's a lifetime appointment. So he's actually kind of giving John like some some, you know, some tough talk, but also some talk from some experience. Um, this scene got me so amped up for whenever we're going to get another John and Jamie scene. Cause you know, that's coming in this, in these final six, Jamie is joining the war. He is going to have a scene with Jon Snow. Uh, and it's, it's going to be really, really cool to see how much these two have grown and to see that kind of contrasted against each other. This was a really fun scene on the rewatch. And Jamie Lannister always sending his regards. <laughs> he loves to send his regards. The King's regards. Oh my God. Regarding yeah. Jamie. Yeah. Great movie. Loved that. Did you also notice, uh, in a, another john scene i believe it's the very next john scene uh that john tells Arya to clodor yeah close the door it's the <laughs> close thing. the door is maybe the it's thing. in every game of thrones episode <laughs> maybe it was right in front of our face the whole time oh my god i can't wait to track the clodors uh so many clodors attack of the clodors uh is happening it's real um but speaking of character interactions that you can't wait to see in the final season of game of thrones this is the the last John and Arya scene that we still have in the books, uh, and not the books that are written by George R. R. Martin. I mean, I, I, on the record, mm-hmm. uh, Arya has returned to Winterfell, but John hasn't come back since Arya has come home. Um, these two characters love each other. What's it going to be like when they get back together? It's just so crazy that these little impressions that we see of these characters are just sort of like this. This is it. This is all of the interaction that we have so we just say oh john and aria they have like this amazing relationship that has lasted seven seasons they were in one scene together and it's a very warm scene and it speaks to you know how these characters uh seem to just go mesh together but they were on screen once for three minutes and it's just that that's okay john and aria that they are incredibly close how much attention did you pay to the story that was kicking around a little bit midway through season seven? Uh, this story that had been resurrected from, I think, 2015 or so was when it first popped up online about George R. R. Martin's original pitch and outline for Game of Thrones. Did you pay any attention to that? Was this on your radar? So I had been aware of the original treatment for Game of Thrones, but I wasn't aware of it resurfacing this year. So it resurfaced this year and it kind of um, I don't think that it really indicated too much of where things are going anymore at least um, but it does make it pretty clear that like John and Daenerys are going to be a very very big deal and it highlights a few characters that are going to be supremely important across what was at the time envisioned as a trilogy uh, Arya being one of them and one of the notes that uh, that that George R. R. Martin was allegedly building toward at least in his mind at the time of this pitch was that there was going to be some sort of odd star-crossed love romance between Jon Snow and Arya Stark. Yeah. 
uh, weird, 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 weird. And I mean, I guess like, you know, they're not siblings and like he is already in a relationship (laughs) with his, uh, with his aunt over on the actual Game of Thrones. And we're definitely never veering into the territory of Jon Snow and Arya Stark being a couple either in the books or on the show. I really don't think that would be, I would be so blown away by that. But it was on my mind because of the fact that this story had been making the rounds, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And then going back and seeing this only John and Arya scene uh, that we ever have on Game of Thrones, just like for a minute, I was like, Ugh, icky, 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 <laughs> not liking that at all. Now, in fairness, I mean, what year was that treatment written in? What, 94 or 95? I think it was like, yeah, it was yeah. like 93, I think. Something even, like potentially. that. So, yeah, it's just George like, had a long time to think better of that idea man that dude loves incest like (laughs) just what's going on Mm -hmm. what's going on george yeah anyway so that's just a little bit of a little bit of trivia for you uh there's also uh the scene where john goes and visits bran and i wonder if this is something that's worth uh planting a flag into because we do know that the seventh season of game of thrones really did like to do what i was calling you know sort of this like navel gazing thing where it would look inside its own history and pull out the contents and bring them back up in season seven. Like that whole, that's not you line that Arya says to, to Nymeria when she reunites with Nymeria in season seven. So I wonder like how much old material is going to resurface in the final stretch of the show whenever we get there. And so when John parts ways with Bran, he says to Bran, I wish I could be here when you wake up. I'm going north with Uncle Benjen. I'm taking the black. I know we always talked about seeing the wall together. You can visit me at Castle Black when you're better. I'll know my way around by then. I'll be a sworn brother of the Night's Watch. We can go out walking beyond the wall if you're not afraid. Mm. What are the odds that we see a scene in the final season of Game of Thrones of Jon Snow and Bran Stark traveling to the wall together, whether that's physically or or as part of some sort of projection, you know, Bran being able to kind of go into dreams and go into the past and maybe he can take somebody with him. Um, do you think that this is something that we're going to see bear out in the final season? Well, I almost feel like at this point, what business would they have at the wall considering that the Night King has already knocked the wall down and is coming through it at this point? <laughs> There's you're going to be going behind the enemy if you went to the wall. Well, I wonder what's behind the enemy. You know, we've seen the White Walker Fortress once upon a time. Is there anything there that's worth checking out? Like they'll never the suspect Walker. that. They'll never suspect it, John and Bran sneaking up on the army of the dead. You know, I wonder if this is like a thing, like a moment that we could revisit in like a year and a half or however long it's going to take for Game of Thrones to end where it's like, oh, man, they really did go behind enemy lines. I wonder, <laughs> you know, I think it's not impossible. Maybe I could see sort of in the aftermath of assuming that the Night King gets taken out before the end and doesn't triumph over the living and everybody in Westeros that maybe in some sort of like an epilogue assuming John lives we could see John and Bran at the wall I mean that's I think certainly in the realm of possibility yeah I could see that scene as well uh or like you know Bran and the other Starks like maybe bringing like John's body to to the wall like to bury him like in in the place that meant the most to him or something like that uh I think I think you could see that scene fairly easily but i don't know i do think that there is a there's there's like a closeness between not just john and aria uh which i do think is healthier than originally envisioned uh on the show uh, but i think that there's also a closeness between john and bran that's really emphasized in these first two episodes that i'm just wondering what the ramifications of that will be like what's the big payoff that's going to be coming in that regard now we have a super important scene as john also says goodbye to ned in this episode and And as Ned is going to be heading down the King's Road with Robert and everybody that rode up north with him, we have one final goodbye between John and Ned. And we see John really taking this opportunity to ask Ned if he could tell him about his mom. Is she going to care that he's leaving, that he's going to go take the black? Is my mother alive? Does she know about me, where I am, where I'm going? Does she care? The next time we see each other, we'll talk about your mother. Mm -hmm. I promise. 
Promise. Promise me, Ned. Promise me, Ned. Yeah. Promise me. Uh, this is a great episode for the uh, the John Targaryen of it all. Yeah. Uh, like, there's a couple of moments that are really, really good. That's certainly one of them. And just what an awesome performance from Sean Bean, uh, who's just like kind of like trembling with like kind of like this like super quietly withheld uh, fury of emotion uh, that he's been you know sitting on this secret for so long. And you get that great scene shortly thereafter. I think immediately thereafter between Ned and Robert. Where where Robert is like kind of needling, uh, not with the the sword, no. uh, but is sort of needling at at Ned to kind of talk about who was the mistress and all of that. And uh, they even talk about the subject of like killing all the Targaryens. And like when you know what the secret is, and when you know that Ned has been sitting on this information that uh, this boy he has raised to be his son is not his son, is his nephew, and also happens to be half Targaryen. It suddenly makes a whole lot of sense why he hasn't said shit to anybody. You know, like it makes a lot of sense why Ned has sat on this secret as he's hearing Robert just like rail against the Targaryens. Like, what would he do to Jon Snow if he knew? Well, you sort of see both sides in this episode where you see Robert talking about how he'll kill every Targaryen. But then you'll see Cat Stark also as Jon comes to say goodbye to Bran. Just be absolutely horrible to yeah. Jon Snow. And Jon Snow never did anything to Cat. And she's like, get out of here. I don't want you in here. Yeah. Leave. <laughs> Get out of here! <laughs> yeah, I want you to leave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she Go turned away. into the uh, twenty-four version. <laughs> what was that character's name again? I don't even remember. <laughs> oh, no. uh, that was great, great times. Oh my god, live another day, indeed. Uh, but yeah, you know, Catelyn is anti John, and it's a tough life for John. Because Ned walks in, he's like, "All right, all right, all right." Come on, like he's he's have a hard he's got a hard time here. And yeah, Catelyn's like you you know you came back with another woman's son, and now you're leaving again. And like yeah, like you can really see it on Ned that like he's just keeping this from literally everybody, and that's a very very difficult secret for him to sit on. This is my impression of this is me as Ned Stark. Here we go again. (laughs) uh, All right, all right, all right, fine. Yeah, okay. I think that Ned is, and I don't mean for this to be an insult, Rob. I just think that he is a man of more patience than you. And uh, that would and be that's me every time thing. the lady yeah. sister Nino would bring up uh, the, <laughs> the. I don't the, think that you're. I don't think you're sitting on the secret for as long as Ned Stark has. Uh, with all due respect, you know, I think you would break. I do think you would crack. You, uh, right, do you, you really want to know? yeah right exactly uh do you think that there's anything to forecast between this final uh in this final scene between john and ned uh ned saying the next time we see each other we'll talk about your mother i promise clearly ned's not going to be doing a lot of talking anymore given where he's going at the end of this first season but we don't have John aware of his mother yet on the show. We're fully aware. Bran is aware. Sam is aware. Uh, there are people on the show who know and people on the show who are probably about to find out very, very soon, including John. But that moment hasn't bared out yet as we're talking about this episode. Do you think that it's going to be like at the crypts of Winterfell and maybe it's going to be in front of, you know, Ned's body? Is that a possibility? Like, how will the ghost of Ned Stark be involved in the revelation that John is a Targaryen. Like, I feel like that has to, that loop should close. I'm not so sure it's easy for Bran to get down into the crypts. I wonder, can Bran take John with him into sort of some sort of a vision? Right. Yeah, I was wondering the same exact thing. Like, but then I thought, how many times are we going to go back to the Tower of Joy? Like, how many different versions of that exact scene are we going to see? But that could be one. Like, that could be one way. I don't know what the other scene, like, what would be the other moment uh, where, like, who did Ned confide in? Like, maybe that's how you get another Howland Reed scene, but I feel like it's a little late in the game for Howland Reed at this point on the show. Fun to explore the Targaryen John, the Aegon Targaryen of it all, as we go through this rewatch. Do you want to talk about anything from Danny and her time with Khal Drogo? 
Yeah, I mean, we got some good feedback uh, after our first episode last week, and we highly encourage anybody who wants to write in, be a part of this, please do. You can send feedback to us a number of ways. Uh, we have a feedback form, postshowrecaps.com slash feedback. We also have our email address, got at postshowrecaps.com, so you can get to us either of those two ways or are great ways of getting in touch. Uh, and Sarah of House Mormont, uh, I don't know from the actual House Mormont or not, uh, wrote in uh, with something that's from the Danny storyline this week. Sarah writes, in episode two, Jorah explains this Dothraki prophecy of ghost grass to Danny. Quote, in the Shadowlands beyond Ashai, they say there are fields of ghost grass with stalks as pale as milk that glow in the night and murders all other grass. The Dothraki believe that one day it'll cover everything, and that's the way the world will end. We see many similarities between this ghost grass and the White Walkers and the Long Night. Curious to hear oh. your thoughts. Um, did you, did you, did any of that register with you, the ghost grass of it all? Like, did that, was that something that kind of popped on your radar? Well, I thought about it. And I said, well, that makes no sense that that would be a nice way for the world to end covered in ghost grass. But to a Dothraki warlord who has never seen the snow, could ghost grass be snow? Right. I wonder, you know, uh, and I don't know, like, you know, how many people actually have had eyes on the Shadowlands beyond Ashai. Like, I don't think Jorah has been there. I don't think many people have been there. So you would only hear like stories. Probably you would hear legends. Uh, you would hear like, you know, fourth hand accounts of what's going on over there. So, yeah, like I do think like that makes sense to me that you could just imagine that it's snow piling up. Um, and, you know, on the uh, on the wiki page for ghost grass, it talks about how ghost grass can uh you know it's been described as potentially being like taller than uh than people riding upon horses so that could be like mountains of blizzards and stuff like that there is in the world of ice and fire uh the big coffee size table book uh that's a basically just this incredibly epic encyclopedia that anyone who's into game of thrones should own. I vouch for it completely. I love it. I love reading that thing almost more than reading the actual books. It's just so compelling and so interesting and so rich and detailed with history. And you do read a lot about how, you know, stuff like the Azora High prophecy uh, and the the prince who is promised and somebody's going to come and end the long night. Like there are different versions of this type of prophecy that are littered throughout Game of Thrones and littered throughout the world beyond Westeros and the different lands in Essos that we spend some time in, but many of the places we don't spend any time in, like this country called Yeeti, which is basically the Game of Thrones equivalent of China. Uh, and there are different stories that are kind of parallel to the same exact story that you hear about, like this one true hero that is going to come in and save the day. So I think that that kind of links up. Like I think the idea of ghost grass being snow or being just a different interpretation of sort of the same apocalyptic events that have occurred before and may be occurring again and uh, are certainly threatening to occur again and are certainly an active situation on the show. I just found that fascinating. Uh, I thought that that was a really, really great moment. And even if it's not sort of literally connected, it at least speaks kind of figuratively to what this show is driving toward and what it's been driving toward since the very, very beginning. One of my favorite things about having Jorah back in the East is I love of getting to hear Jorah pronounce the names of all of the cities in Essos, and we get yes. plenty of good Ashai. Ashai. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, Jorah voice is definitely going to be a thing here, I feel like. Very fun to talk like Jorah and name uh, different spots on the map. Josh, also, Danny is really burning through a lot of candles, uh, keeping these dragon eggs warm. I'm not sure why she thought to do that, other than that, here, you know, she got this decoration. She's just keeping candles around those dragon eggs 24 7. She's holding a candle for those dragon eggs. She's, you know, keeping a torch. Maybe that's how the dragons came back. It's just like slow and steady, low and slow fire. They were just like slowly simmering and incubating inside of those eggs, thanks to Danny's vigilance. Mm -hmm. I also thought it's unusual that there is a scene that comes later on in the episode where Carl Drogo ends up returning to the tent. I'm not sure where he had been, but he enters the tent completely disrobed. I'm not sure like where he was coming from that he was naked. 
it doesn't surprise me to imagine a Dothraki barbarian just like strutting around in the nude. Mm-hmm. They don't seem especially uh, shy or even he's not a shy uh, or even <laughs> a shy. <yeah. laughs> uh, you know, he certainly doesn't need to be. I mean, you know, he's not. Goodness, my goodness. So yeah, no, I that that didn't really uh that didn't really ping on my radar except for the obvious reasons. <laughs> but there is a there's a, an interesting transition from that scene to like you immediately go from like Daenerys staring into the fire and I think that takes you right into Jon Snow. Uh like anytime like you're connecting Jon and Danny across the show, uh I think that's that's fun stuff to to watch for just like the way that those scenes transition from from one to the other. Something we didn't talk about last week, but it happened again uh, this week that I just thought, I, I just, I, it doesn't mean anything, but it just kind of tickles me, uh, is in the opening credits, these are the days when Kit Harrington wasn't worthy of his own billing. He has to share space on the screen with another actor, and that other actor is Harry Lloyd, who plays Viserys. So I just think it's kind of funny that you've got these two Targaryens together uh, sharing some screen time. Yes. Uh, one of which we know about, one of which we do not know about at the time. Yeah. One of which ultimately got his crown of gold as well. Indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> the other indeed. one's still waiting. Yes, 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 yes. Just to go to the end of the episode, I think that, you know, we really see Cersei and her meanness in full display at the end of the episode when she is the one really pushing for uh, the dire wolves to be taken out. Now, again, as the Queen of Thorns will mention here in season seven, uh, we are not of the imagination at the time that we first see this episode to imagine what she is ultimately capable of, but a little bit of a window into Cersei here. A little bit of a window into Cersei here. Yeah, I mean, like, this is uh, it's uh, it's some creative cruelty, for sure. Oh, the direwolf that attacked my son is gone? Well, you got another direwolf. We can just kill that one. Uh, and just, like, the like the the lack of caring, like, just, like, the complete, just, like, casual nature of commanding that execution is uh, definitely a window into, into where we're going with Cersei Lannister. You know, her capacity for cruelty is established really quickly here on Game of Thrones. One other interesting note from Jamie earlier in the episode that he's having the conversation with Tyrion about the update about Bran and how he's going to live, but he is going to be doing so paralyzed from here on out. Jamie tells Tyrion, I would rather die than be a grotesque. And we know ultimately that uh, he will be mutilated uh, in uh, two seasons from now. Yeah. And I mean, those books uh, like that story that had already existed, Uh, you know, by the time that, um, you know, Game of Thrones is starting up a storm of swords where uh, that's the third book. And that's where that happened. So that was already on the table. So that's that's a great moment of just like setting up something that you're going to slam dunk further on down the line. Uh, Love that. Really love that. That's a great moment. Uh, Any any kind of teasing like that that you get this early on is is really great. Uh, And clearly, of course, Jamie's thoughts on the matter will evolve, Uh, but he will be very, very, very very deeply, deeply, deeply bummed out about stuff uh, when that happens in the immediate aftermath of that. Did you like seeing uh, Sir Illyn Payne in this episode, uh, who we haven't seen on the show in quite a while, sadly? I know that he is more of a figure in the books. If I correct me if I'm wrong, what is the issue? The actor that played Ilan Payne ended up passing away. Is that right? So the actor who plays Ilan Payne is a man is a man named uh, Wilco Johnson, who's a who's a musician, uh, and he uh, he was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer, uh, and so he withdrew from the show as a result of that. And I'm not uh, I'm not immediately able to recall exactly what happened. But he beat cancer. He survived. Uh, he's still alive. Uh, but I think that, you know, he's, you know, living out his life and, you know, he's away from Game of Thrones at this point. But he had left the show because the, the diagnosis was uh, was so grave. Uh, but he's OK. He's he's alive uh, as we are recording this. Uh, and that character, uh, Ilan Payne has a more prominent role in the books for sure, where he is the guy who trains Jamie how to fight again after he loses his hand. He's the guy who is, uh, you know, taking the time out to train Jamie how to fight left-handed. Uh, that's a role that has since gone to Braun of the Blackwater on the show, who is much less of a deal in uh, in the books, more of a, you know, just kind of like a funny aside character, uh, not an a shy character. Uh, and he is uh, given a much more prominent 
prominent role on the show as a result of what happened with Wilco Johnson and having to remove Ilan Payne from the story. Um, it's kind of funny in, you know, in obviously a, in a dark way, but it's kind of funny to me just because Ilan Payne is by design because of what happened to him 20 years before the show started. Uh, he's mute. He can't speak because he lost his tongue. And the character who's replacing his story energy on the show is like the most talkative character. <laughs> you know? So it's just like a totally different dynamic. All right, Josh. Well, this was a lot of fun to go through everything from the King's Road. Anything you want to highlight before next week's rewatch of Lord Snow? Lord Snow. Uh, yeah, Big John Snow episode coming up next. We're going to spend some time on the wall. We're finally getting the Starks in King's Landing. We'll finally get Littlefinger on the board, so we'll be able to talk about what's going on with him. Catwin Stark will travel by map, and she will get to King's Landing super swiftly, so I'm sure that we'll, we'll mock that to some degree. Uh, but yeah, good episode coming up. One thing that I do want to do um, as we are doing these podcasts is one of the biggest articles I've uh, written for the Hollywood Reporter, and I mean biggest in terms of size, like it's just, a, it's a, it, was a, it was an epic to write, uh, were my episode rankings of every episode of Game of Thrones. And I feel like since we're doing this rewatch, it's an opportunity maybe to make some revisions or Ooh. to like re-rank the episodes as we're going and just see like how much that matches up with the one that exists already. And, uh, you know, if it's massively different, you know, when we get to the end of the line here on Game of Thrones, maybe it could be uh, the replacement rankings, maybe do some revisions there. Uh, only two episodes to talk about right now. Uh, in that regard. So I think I would, I would stay with, uh, I have, uh, the King's road is 43 overall as it currently stands. And winter is coming is, I believe it's at 22, Mm -hmm. uh, out of 67 episodes as it stands. I would still keep that order. Winter is coming ahead of the King's road. Uh, so as it stands through two episodes of game of Thrones, Rob, Winter is Coming is the best episode of Game of Thrones. Okay. I really did like (laughs) The King's Road. I think you might be too low on The King's Road overall. Yeah, I think overall, I do think, like, it speaks to the quality of this show. It's like, you know, you're not talking about, like, really, like, there's you're never really even talking about an unwatchable episode of Game of Thrones, as far as I'm concerned. But you're not talking about shows that are, like, more bad than good or episodes that are more bad than good until maybe, like... You know, you're really only talking about that for like maybe like five episodes, if that. So it's going to be tough. It'll be it'll be tough. to. It was tough to rank them the first time. And then as we add many more to the pile, I think it'll it'll be interesting. But for now, I think the I, I love the pilot so much. I think that episode is great. I thought the King's Road was great as well. Uh, I'm sure that we're going to love basically every every episode that we come across. Okay, so we want to hear from you guys. What do you think about Gendry being the product of Cersei and King Robert? What do you think <laughs> Probably about Probably not. <laughs> Probably not, but look, we'd love to hear it. Uh, what do you think about yeah. uh, everything else we talked about in this episode? You can leave us your feedback on postshowrecaps.com or you can send us an email, got at postshowrecaps.com as well. And then we'll be back for another Targaryen Tuesday one week from now when we talk about episode three of the first season of Game of Thrones. Of course, uh, you can follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter at Round Howard and see everything that he's working on over at The Hollywood Reporter. That's a good idea. I recommend you do it. And in addition, check out our Star Trek rewatch uh, series that I am doing to lead up to Star Trek Discovery. Uh, We've done a couple of those. We'll be kicking off our Star Trek Discovery podcast here on Post Show Recaps this Sunday. And then, of course, uh, Josh and I also brought you more coverage from the season of Fear the Walking Dead, all on PostShowRecaps.com. Fantastic. Oh, my God. So much happening. It's all happening. It's all happening. Josh, do you have a hashtag for this episode? Oh, man. Uh, hashtag Gendry Truther. Gendry that- Truther. Okay. <laughs> Does that work? Yeah. Let us know your opinion on the true thing of Gendry's mom. Yeah. Yeah, if he was a baby, I don't think he'd remember his mom had yellow hair or anything like that, according to this. Uh, that seems a little bit of a uh, tall tale for Gendry. We just we just have to be, you know, going down rabbit holes here. You know, that's it's a fun thing to do or dire wolf holes, as it were. All right. Good stuff. Talk to you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. 